Hello and welcome to the Alan Parry Podcast, where I have lovely conversations with fascinating people and then let you listen in. Today's show features David Renton. Now, David is a barrister who specialises in social justice cases where he takes the side of ordinary people, often against very, very powerful interests. He's also an author and a historian, and he's the only person that I know who went to Eton College, the famous English public school that's given us 19 of our Prime Ministers, including, of course, the current one. Now, David was kind enough to take me behind the scenes of what life was like for a child both living and studying at Eton. He's a lovely guy and someone I've got an awful lot of respect for, and this is a fascinating insight into a world that most of us simply don't know. So without further ado, let's hear from the very interesting David Renton. Hello, David. Thanks very much for being on the podcast today. It's, it's great to have you on. Oh, that's a pleasure, Al. Um, I, I almost feel like I should start with an apology, really, because, you know, you've got... You're one of those people that when I was um, looking through the people I wanted on the podcast, you're about six interviews in one because you've got so many different interests that I'm fascinated in. So I feel like I'm doing a disservice to you by focusing on your school days, really. But Eton is such an iconic school, and uh, I think you're probably the only person that I know who's ever ever been there. Um, I wanted to... I thought it'd be fascinating to get a a um, bird's eye view of of what it's like as to be a, to be a child at, at Eton College. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, look, the, the one thing I would say is that um, you know when I lived in the northwest, um, it seemed a very long way from Eton College. But you know that it's not always like that. I mean, I, I remember wandering around streets of North Liverpool and seeing that you'd go from um, streets that were called Magdalen Street, Balliol Street. And very obviously, there'd been someone there who, who, you know, the person who'd named them had some connection with Oxford, because they're all the names of Oxford colleges. That's right, actually. I'd not thought of that. And, and this, you know, there, there was a time when, um, to put it crudely, the ruling class in Britain had um, more of a geographical spread. The, the, the ruling class that we've got these days, where it's all London in the southeast, I think that's actually something that's quite recent. Right, OK. Well, that's an interesting point, yeah. I mean, I'd, yeah, because these streets are like Balliol Street, um, you know, I, I've seen them right throughout my life and I've never really made the connection that you've just made. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. What, what was it that, I mean, how did you end up at Eton? What's your kind of family background that, that led you there, David? Well, I had quite an unusual family. I mean, even in kind of Eton terms, in that there were really two very distinct sides to it. Um, on my dad's side, um, going back um, decades and decades and generations and generations, they were a family of um, what you'd call Scottish gentry. So so people who lived in towns had quite a lot of money. Maybe they were clergymen. Maybe they went off and did something in the British Empire. Um, there, there were people, on, if you go back even just two or three generations on my dad's side, um, um, his mother's side, there were people who'd been a bit more than that, who'd been I think one of them had, had actually been an MP for um, one of the Liverpool constituencies in the 19th century. But, but, but Who was that, just out of interest, seeing as a lot of Liverpool people will be listening? I can't remember his first name off the top of the head, but the surname was Tor. OK. So that's something that people could look up. But, yeah. but that, that, that's my dad's side of the family. On my mum's side of the family, completely, completely different. Um, there were um, people who, who lived um, in Eastern Europe in the shtetl, um, were Jews, um, came, got as far as Austria 
um, by the 1930s, then we're absolutely caught up in, in the Holocaust. And my granddad on my mother's side was, um, again, a name that people may know as Kurt Geiger. Yes. The, the shoe designer. And um, so, so my parents came from those two different backgrounds. In, in a sense, if you put it together, one way it's posh and rich. Um, so when I was a kid, um, they, they knew right from the day I was born that they wanted me to go to Eton. My dad had gone to Eton. Um, before him, his, his dad and his dad's dad, they hadn't gone to Eton, but had gone to public schools, had gone to Harrow, as it happens. Yeah. And um, there was an idea, you know, they wanted the kid to go to Eton. So from very early on, I knew that was what I was lined up for. And something like that, you know, that people were talking about with me when I was six, seven. Um, and, and I eventually went there at the age of um, 13, just heading towards 14. Yeah, I read this because I've done a little, I didn't do too much reading because I, I wanted it more to be your perspective rather than bringing too much to it. But I was quite surprised actually when I, I looked on Wikipedia that it, that people tend to go to Eton at thirteen rather than most senior schools, which is more like eleven and twelve. Yeah, no, I mean, there's different things. The 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 whole way, you know, seven percent of kids in Britain go through private education. Yes, all kids who go through private education, you have different staging points. Um, for, for secondary education in this country, for 93% of people, the key age is 11, and that's primary to secondary. But, but in, the, in the private school system, um, the key age is 13, 14, and that's when you go to um, from prep school, which is equivalent to primary school, to, to public school. Um, I mean, the, the other big thing worth, worth saying, just to help everyone fit into it, is that at Eton, the majority of people who, who've boarded, because Eton's only a boarding school, a majority don't start boarding at 13 when they go to Eton. The majority actually go into um, boarding prep schools from the age of eight. So the, so the ordinary thing, if that's your family and that's what you're going to be doing, is boarding from the age of eight to 18. With me, as it happened, I, I lived in London and my parents went into that, so I boarded from 13. Okay. I was, I was going to ask you whether you'd boarded previously, actually, because I, I know from various articles I've read that a lot of people do start you know from a very very young age you know seven eight years of age as you've said yeah no that that wasn't my thing but but that's that's the that's it's not everyone does that but you know probably two-thirds of the kids are eating that's the route they've come through so how, how did that feel for you sort of um i mean how, how many boys were there at eaton when you started to board um there had been 1300 give or take in the school as a whole um, in five years, so a bit over, you know, you know, two hundred and twenty or so in each year, and then you divide it in houses. So um, there's about twelve, there's about sixty kids in a house, and there's twelve or so f- from each year. So there were twelve within my inner group of my house. Um, yeah, yeah. What was it like to what was it like to board then? So you'd you'd been sort of used to coming home, etc., until the age of thirteen after a school day, and then. You effectively lived there from the age of 13 to adulthood, summer holidays and other holidays, you know, aside. What was that like to enter that environment for the first time? Well, it was bloody horrible, if I'm honest. In what way? Um, well, there's just an intense feeling of um, loneliness, of deprivation from your parents, from the people that you that you used to, that you've known. Um, you... You end up being um, um, at Eton in particular. They they have a rule which is that, that they don't want kids to um, board in dormitories. They want everyone to be boarding in their own room for, for various reasons. So you're there. 
you're by yourself, you don't know anyone. Um, I mean, there was also an edge for me because um, while I wasn't in any formed or polished way a political person, um, I did already have a sense that I was on the left. Um, I'd, I'd very strongly reached that view before I went to Eton and, and I had a very strong feeling of being on enemy territory. Right. You know, that um, you'd have the kids, and, and this I'm talking about from day one, that, you know, you'd have kids would be wandering along and, and they'd start talking and someone would go, oh, I went on on holiday last thing, they'd be, oh, they went on holiday and went skiing and they'd be talking about how much money they had. Then someone would up the ante and they'd be going, oh, yeah, no, my, my dad owns the hotel you were staying at or whatever. Yes. And, you know, I just didn't feel that I wanted to be any part of those sorts of conversations whatsoever. Um, so just... just um... Yeah, in the lead up to that, I mean, it's a different question I was going to ask, but I'm, I'm interested by this. I, I, I started getting those sort of feelings around about the same sort of age, really, about about the age of 13, where I started to crystallise my social views, I suppose. But given that you were kind of a person who, as a child, was already pretty firmly on the left in your own sense of values, did you feel any tension yourself? Because your, your family had decided from the age of birth that you were going to Eton, and what was your feelings about, did you have resistance to going to Eton or was it kind of, well, this is where I'm going, so I'm accepting it? I'm just wondering what internal tension might have been going on for you, seeing as you'd come up with these uh, values quite early on. Well, well, I didn't want to exaggerate the extent to which I was, I was formed politically at that age. I mean, sure. I think it might be useful just to give you a flavour of it. And it's not something I can fully vocalise because some of it's about relationships with people who are still alive. But yes. Um, a very big formative experience for me was in, immediately in the year before I went to um, to Eton, my mum had been um, sectioned for mental illness. And I don't really want to go into all of that, save to say that, that 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 started before I went to Eton and was part of my life for the next 10 years. It wasn't a small or passing illness. It was a major, major part of her life. Um, and I just remember having this, you know, I was reading things and some things I was reading already were pretty left-wing. But it was for me. It was just about watching the miners' strike because I was born in 1972, very late in 72. So the miners' strike was just going on that happened, and that intense sense of solidarity that you could see um, versus what seemed to be going on in the people immediately around me. Yeah. Um, now, what that definitely led to was a sense of not wanting to be there, a sense of rejecting the place. But you've also got to bear in mind I was 13 years old. Of course, yeah. You know, I mean, um. I didn't know how to, to cook for myself. I didn't know how to look after myself. And I couldn't have just gone off and said, right, I'm going back to London. I'm going to find my own school and <laughs> sort out my Oh, life no, you're, you're, you're a child, aren't you? That's completely outside your your power at that stage. I was just kind of wondering what was going on for you internally yeah, at that all, point. All I, all I was really trying to convey was just it was a very strange and alien and un unpleasant experience right from the very beginning. Um and I, I suppose one of the things was that what, what you do is, you, is you're, if you're in an institution which is hostile, you try to find um, resources of, of things which maybe can keep you going or, or people you can talk to or, or whatever. And I, I, and I suppose what, with me, what, what I was trying to do is it, it didn't feel to me that it was a school where there was, where there was a great deal of emphasis on academic things at all. There were an enormous amount of academic resources, but there wasn't an academic culture. So when I was a kid, a lot of it was about trying to just find 
really two groups of kids, either the kids who were quite bright and could see that the system was pretty rotten and you could talk to, or alternatively just find kids who, you know, they had something in their family or their background that they too were a bit outsiders there and they too had a bit of a, of a kind of rubbing against the system. And, and I suppose right from early on, that, that was how, what my strategy was, was for survival, was to find people like that who I could get on with. And did you find many of those? Did you manage to get like a little sort of nucleus as a, as a buffer to, to what you were feeling? Yeah, definitely. And, and in, in different ways. I mean, you know, and, you know, these, these will sound ridiculous, the examples I give you, but, but you know, but they were there. Um, and, and that would range from, you know, my mate Luke, who um, had grown up, had actually gone to a state primary school and, um, and had spent a couple of years in private before going to Eton, but it, most of his life had been in, in the state system. And he, he lived in an area of North London, which oddly enough is more or less the area of North London I live in now. And, you know, as soon as we could run away from Eton and spend time outside at weekends or on holidays, I'd go there. Yeah. Um, all that would range to, you know, and the examples I'm giving now are much more ridiculous, but, but I say these were real people in my life. There was a lad called um, Rory who I was very, very close to, who I'd been at school with um, before um, and around the age of five and six, although his dad was a kind of diplomat, so I hadn't seen him then for five, six years, and he was at Eton, and he was talkative, and he was bright, and he was sharp, and he could see that the system stank, and I talked to him a lot. There was a lad called Marlo, whose um, parents had actually been involved in the new left review. God knows why they'd sent him to Eton, and he was a, he was a really close friend. That he'd been in the New Left Review, did you say? Yeah, yeah, his yeah. dad's been on the editorial board and um, ended up being a journalist for The Economist and moved in more right-wing circles, but his friendship circles were still very much on, on the left and Marlowe had um, maintained that. There was a, another guy called um, Dipendra and he was extraordinary. I mean, he hated the school too, um, but for completely different reasons. I say this will sound ridiculous, but it's true. He was... Um, he was a guy who um, was part of a, a, a ruling family. That, I mean, there were a few kids like that who, you know, were going to be the king or whatever of the country um, that they were going to go back to. He was going to go back and rule Nepal. Right. Um, I'm not kidding. Either. This is very alien to how I live now. But yeah. um, he, was, he was a good friend. And, and, you know, we used to drink together a lot. Um, he didn't talk a huge amount. But, you know... You just had a sense of the people who were being spat out by the system, and, and my feeling was that you know the right thing was to gravitate towards them. So it sounds like you've almost formed some sort of outsiders club to to kind of be a support system for each other. Yeah, no, I I, I, th- I think that did that did happen. Um, the the whole way that the school just seemed to work was there were these continuous sets of hierarchies. You know, there were the kids who were good at sport. There were the kids who were good at work. There were the kids who were good at this, that, or whatever. And you were constantly being told in each of the ladder you were at place 53 out of 250 or place 20 or whatever. And, I mean, there were a lot of kids who who were spat out by that process. Um, I mean, overall, you know, in terms of kids who, when they were 18, 19, 20, would talk about being damaged by it. Yeah. I'd say that you're talking about, a sizable proportion, you know, 25-30% of the kids would have used that language and said, we hated it, we disliked it, we were glad to go. So when they talk about, because I was going to talk about the sort of psychological development, because it seems quite a harsh environment from an outsider looking in, just to be boarded together and not being in a, a family environment and, and 
you know, I'm, I was wondering things like, um, you know, how one can express vulnerability with, you know, all them lads around you that you live with all the time. But when they talk about being damaged, what are they actually referring to there, do you think? Or is it a myriad of things? I think it's a, a myriad, myriad of things. I mean, I mean, you're talking about people who had symptoms that, you know, you, that you describe as um, depressive or PTSD type symptoms. Um, and they'd have that based on the experience of um, of having been at that school. I mean, I, I, mean, I was recently at a, at a friend's, um, I mentioned my friend Luke, um, he recently um, got married and I just met someone at the party who I'd never particularly talked to at Eton. Um, and, um, and, but we'd both been there, so we got chatting and I said to him, you know, um, you know how, how do you feel about the school now? And he said that he still can't mention its name. He's got two daughters and he can't tell them the school he went to. Yeah. I said, well, you know, I've got kids. I'm, you know, I'm going to show them the place. And, you know, you know I've, got a whole, I've got a whole language in terms of how I describe it to my children. I talk about it as the bad Hogwarts and they, you know, we yeah. make a joke out of it. But, but he's saying literally that he, he still felt so bitter and unhappy about what happened in that age and how unpleasant he'd found it there, that it wasn't something that he could, you know, even talk about to his kids and he'd be ashamed to talk about with his kids yeah I feel I feel I feel a real sadness hearing that to be honest I mean what kind of experiences were was it when they're having this reaction um is it is it that they didn't like the hierarchy of it or or is there some other sort of even more sinister stuff going on there that people were suffering on a on a large level, do you know what I mean? I mean? What what were these kind of experiences that people are having a bad reaction to? Is it just the school system? Is it is it the hierarchical nature of, you know, if you're number 200 out of 250, you feel worthless, or is it something else as well? I, I don't know if it is something else. I think it really just is the hierarchies. I mean, obviously, being a relatively political person, I interpret it in relatively political ways. But if I think about the person I was just talking about, I mean, he's, he was called Jimmy. Um, you know, the example he gave me was something you've just referred to, which was that, that um, you know, you, you had exams at the end of each term. Um, the, the, in each subject, you were placed in a strict ladder. Your overall performance was placed on a strict ladder. There were, say, 250 kids or however many in the year. He, he was describing the experience of looking at that list of 250 names and seeing himself at, at around 245 and that made him feel worthless. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think one thing that, that, that maybe that, that's worth fitting into this in terms of that sense of hierarchy is that, and I think this is something that, that was, you know, clever and sociologically interesting and, and, and gives some justification for it in their terms, which was there was a very strong sense at Eton that, that um, people were taught the experience of being ruled in order to learn the experience themselves later on of being rulers, um, that, that a lot of this um, creation of hierarchy was about, you know, was about in the sense of you start off very small, but there's a promise if you just hang on long enough, you'll end up on the top. And if you want to see that as a sort of bullying chain, um, at, at the start you're being bullied, but there's a promise at the top you know, you're definitely not going to be bullied because this is, amongst other things, a hierarchy about age. Yeah. And age is something which everyone is going to get older. And because everyone's going to get older, they will get away from the worst bits of it. And, and how that was um, 
specifically reflected at the school was in terms of the, the um, dress uniforms we wore. Um, you, you've probably seen the, the pictures of Eton schoolboys all with the long tail coats and, yes. the, and the waistcoats and the grey trousers and the funny white cotton tie and the detachable collars and all that. Um, that's the dress code, and that's the, that's the dress code which is which people had to wear a lot, um, not just in weekdays, on Saturdays till till the afternoon, and so on. But but as you went up the school, there were things which you got which you were entitled to add to it. That it was very easy to get what called stick up collars with a white bow tie. So that was the status symbol, which in reality was a marker of age more than anything else. Or that all certain kids got brightly coloured waistcoats. That's called pop. Other ones got um, silver buttons on their waistcoats, which was an academic thing. Yeah, so I read a little bit about this, actually, that people had... Um, I mean, pop is one of the societies in Eton, if I understand it right. Um, yeah. And it did it did strike me, just reading on, on the Wikipedia entry, how, how, how many different layers of status and hierarchy were kind of, were kind of knitted in. Um, almost so many that it would be difficult to keep track of, really. But the silver buttons and a certain type of trouser and all this were were part of it. But ju- just because you've mentioned pop, can you just clarify mm. what that is? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, there were two systems of school prefect. One was sixth form select, and that was about 20 kids, in principle, the brightest kids in the final year. And there was pop, which was 20 kids, um, with the ones with the funny waistcoats. And they were the highest form prefect. And the idea behind pop was, essentially, they were the ones who had chosen... Um, really socially um, as the most popular kids um, in that in that final upper year. So they were elected by their peers, basically? Yeah, they were elected by a combination of the year above and the teachers. Um, it was a slightly mysterious process. I think, I think I only worked out how they were actually elected in my last three or four days at the school, because that was part of the mystique of pop. You didn't really know how people got in there. Um, but... Um, yeah, and they were they were the highest form of prefect. What what kind of things at Eton were? I'm going to use the term forbidden, but I think that's because I'm not picking my word right. I don't mean forbidden as in actually forbidden. But what I'm interested in is looking at the good and bad of Eton. What were the things which were really nurtured and encouraged, and which were the things which you learn very quickly that you are not to do? Whether that be in terms of rule breaking or emotional and personal stuff. What were the We'll start with that one first, and we'll move on to the more positive one. What were the things that you, as an an, an Eton schoolboy, um, learned very quickly that this was not something that you should be doing? Well, there was a very express and overt system of rules. Um, there was a very very long rule book. I remember in my um, first term, I was seen once running back from the um, athletics um, athletics um, track. And I was caught by a relatively senior teacher. He saw me and said, look, you're wearing a, a T-shirt. It's a T-shirt you're not allowed to wear at this time of day. You don't understand the dress code. So my punishment was as lines. I had to write out the whole school rule book um, twice, um, which took several hours. Um, and and I, I suppose the things which were, which were strict, and I'll also say something about the, the unofficial bits, but in terms of the official bits, I think the two things which they were policing the most were, firstly, how you dressed. Um, and, and we've talked about that. I don't want to go over that again. But secondly, about where you were. Um, there was immense anxiety about um, kids being in, in the wrong place. 
And, you, you know, you've got to bear in mind, this is dealing with a very wide set of kids at different ages and different circumstances. So, for example, um, you will have a 13-year-old kid and you want to be telling them, you've got to be at lessons this time, you've got to be in your study at this time. You, you're, at other times you're allowed to be eaten, but you're not allowed to be outside eating. And that's the rules there. But at other points, you're talking about 18-year-olds who maybe, for example, um, the, the sport they're into is rowing. So naturally, they can get a lot of the way outside um, eating itself. And then all the rules were about um, not going on barges and boats. And again, there was immense panoply of individual rules. And, and behind all of that, um, I suppose there are anxieties about... Um, about kids getting drunk, about kids doing things which would bring the school into disrepute and so on. Um, and, and there's been many, many, many years of experience of kids testing the boundaries in all sorts of extraordinary ways and hundreds, thousands of additions to the rule book to deal with each situation after the event. Um, I mean, if, if just even look at my own family, because it wasn't just my, that my dad had been to Eton, my, my uncle had been to Eton. He'd actually been head boy in the 1940s, and he'd, he'd been um, very close to being expelled because he got involved in gambling. So there were rules against gambling. Um, his son then went to Eton, my, my first cousin, who's now a journalist, and um, he'd, he'd actually tried running away from Eton, run away all the way to France. Wow. Uh, so, so there were obviously rules about running away. Um, there was a great deal of unspoken anxiety about kids getting up to something sexually amongst themselves. Um, but it was, it was pretty well unspoken. It, it, I don't think they'd have even bothered put something in the rule book saying that you shouldn't do that. But, but obviously, um, they were really paranoid about kids doing that. And well, the kids themselves sorry, were paranoid yeah. about other kids doing it. That's, that was the other thing. Sorry. Yeah, no, I was going to ask as well, moving away from the <laughs> rule book sort of thing, let, let's say if you've got a family situation... Um, and like various families have their own cultures. So for instance, you might have a child who at the age of four and five, you know, sings at the top of his voice and then is, is told off for doing so. And then they understand that in their family unit, they're not allowed to kind of be too visible, for instance. So these kind of like little psychological things happen within every single family. So in terms of like the Eaton family, if you like, what were those sorts of things that weren't down in a rule book, but you just understood um, that if you were to do certain things or to be a certain way, would would get kind of like communal disapproval. Was there anything like that in terms of the, if you like, the psychological culture of, I know I'm not allowed to do that and I know I'm going to get a pat on the head for this kind of thing? Well, I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you an example while you're thinking through. I often think, you know, I'm a musician, I, I often think that in working class backgrounds, um, rock music is a way for working class lads to legitimately like poetry because if, if a working class lad were to say you know have you, have you seen this little bit of Shelley it's beautiful might well get a dead leg but you can take <laughs> apart a, something that Oasis have written and everyone will nod and you know it's legitimised so there's, there's in, I think in every school environment there's certain things that are okay and there are certain things that you, if you're smart you best not let out and I'm just wondering what that was in that particular environment of Eton I think, in, in truth, the, the, the big things were, were the no-nos, which weren't really about eating, but were about um, the class generally at that particular time. I mean, you, you're talking about high Thatcherism. 
So there's a there's a notion outside the school which is in society which is against weakness. It's against um, it's it's against large parts of Britain, you know, which is which is snobby, which is about acquisition. If things were cutting with that culture, then generally they were acceptable. And if they were cutting against it, um, they weren't. And it, it it was that simple, really. That. The, the one or two places where there where it wasn't totally like that though was was that there was quite a strong artistic and cultural vibe around Eton. It, it was part of this whole idea that you know because you you're going to have hierarchies for everything. Then, in a sense, there, there was a recognition that that kids were entitled to find their own niche so long as it was the right niche. And if that niche was um, drama, if that niche was poetry, if that, if that niche was music, um, all, all of those were acceptable. I mean, I actually put on, um, in my third year, I helped to organise, um, of all bizarre things, a punk band festival. And there was ab- absolutely no resistance to that at all, um, until, you know, kids were literally pogoing around. And then the <laughs> teachers were going a bit like, is this dangerous? You know, are we allowed to do this? And it's like, well, you try and stop them. Well, <laughs> well give, give us an example of what the wrong niche might be. You said there that it's encouraged if it's the right niche. What would be the wrong niche at Eton? Well, I mean, so, some of the niches were just the things you'd expect. Like, I remember there was a kid, Isaiah, who showed up and he had a broad Leeds accent. And that was seen as just wrong. You know, Eton was not for people who were um, working class. It's not for people from regions because regions were working class. Um, and so there was just this sense that Isaiah basically needed to hide at the back of the school and not say very much, and then he'd be all right. And so how did he, how did he handle that? Was he encouraged to... Did he start speaking in a different accent, or did he, or did he become more invisible? I think he just became more invisible. I mean, I don't... I suspect the accent also softened, but it wasn't the case of him changing the way that he, consciously changing the way that he spoke and consciously um, adapting to it. But it, it was just a case of, you know, the school was very good at just telling people to shut up a bit. And when they did, it was just the easiest things to go along with it. I mean, or, or another example that, that, that I remember from my own life is that um, as I got near the end of the school, for many years, I'd been one of the um, the thing that I did. Everyone, everyone in the school basically did a different thing. It was your, it was your way of flattening the hierarchy. You would say, right, I'm not going to be number one in the school at Latin, but you know, one kid might be the number one in the school at real tennis. And Ethan had its own real tennis, you know, um, I don't know what you call them, um, pitch. And there are only about four of them in the entire country. So he knew that if he was going to do real tennis, he was doing pretty well at real tennis by by anyone's standard. Um, I'm not an example of something where of some choosing their own thing and doing the wrong, doing the wrong thing with it. I, I remember getting a lot of grief because in, in my last two years um, I'd been a very successful runner, and I started saying that I don't want to run for Eton anymore. I want to start running for there was a there was a county Berkshire and there was the the cross Berkshire schools, and so I wanted to run for them rather than Eton. And I remember the amount of <laughs> difficulty that caused. You know, it went from one day being, you know, the best in the school at something which was considered quite desirable and you got lots of medals for and lots of cups to being effectively persona non grata in, in the whole of the school sports system. And um, was that because you'd you'd snubbed Eton or was it because you were now in a lower rank in a you were a smaller fish in a bigger pool? I, I think it was the former. It was just it was a sense that it was it was snubbing the school, it was disloyal to the school and therefore, you know, people just didn't understand why I'd want to do that. 
I want to dig into the niching thing because of the positive things that I read about Eaton was that very thing that you mentioned that people were encouraged to, you know, find their own niche. Like there's um, Dominic West, the actor, went to Eaton and so did Tom Hiddleston. They, they both said the same thing, that what they found about Eaton was that um, it did encourage you to find out the thing that you were good at or the thing that you loved and then really nurtured that. And I was just wondering, you know, is that true from your perspective? And to what extent, you know, what are the aspects of Eaton that, for all the faults that you've identified, what are the aspects of Eaton that you would love to be in every school in the country? Well, on the first, I do think it was true to some extent. Um, and I wouldn't want to exaggerate this because there were lots and lots of kids who were a bundle of potential and were really interesting people who who, who never remotely found anything that, that was them and they were good at and the school would accept and, and treat as valuable. Um, I mean, this worked against a culture which was still, even if you, drama was what you did, you know, you couldn't do drama academically till the sixth form and by then you'll have had, if you weren't good academic, you'll have had three years of it being rubbed in that you weren't any good. Um, so, but, but there, you know, there was an element to that. I, I remember my, I, I wasn't present, but my parents um, talked about the first day when I'm left in the house and all the parents then go off to have a big talk from the headmaster. And it was, it was actually something that he said to them expressly that, you know, for your kid, their survival and their pleasure at this place will be all about them finding their niche and that you as parents should be encouraging them to do that. So, so I do think that there was some of it. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the other thing you asked. Well, I was basically trying to dig into that. You see, what I'm, what I'm thinking is, what, when I look at the school system, especially at the moment, which is very kind of rigid, isn't it? You know, the, the wider school system, I mean. It often seems to me as though what, what kids really need is to be given some sort of um, place to explore while they're young, to find out, have as many different experiences as possible, find out what they love, find out what they're good at, and then in later life they can kind of exploit that. And it seems as though that's lacking in, in our school system. So I was struck the fact that that was something that Eaton really did focus on. And I was wondering whether that's something you would like to see in all schools and what other aspects of Eaton would you actually like to see in, in the wider school system? Um, look, I would like to see that in other schools, but I'd like to see it more. I mean, I'd like to see that part unchained from all the other things which I've described. Yeah. I mean, as as for other things, you really can't go wrong, I think, by starting with the just the sheer imbalance in resources. You know, at Eton College, we were we thirteen hundred kids sounds quite a lot, but I don't think it's larger than than many mm -hmm. secondary schools, and that's many secondary schools that you know have got seven years of pupils, not just five. So, that, so in theory, they've got a wider range of needs that need catering for. You know, if, if I look about, if I look at my eldest and, and, and I saw him this year go through the process because he's 11 and he's been choosing his secondary school you know when I walked around with him the three or four schools the one that he chose the, the single thing that was central to his choice was actually what's the one with the largest library and and the secondary school he chose we're in London so the schools are very well resourced um the the library was about as large as an ordinary sized um kitchen frankly I yeah. mean they'd, they'd used every inch but it wasn't a large room now, at Eton, we had, um, you know, you had um, something like 30-odd houses, all of which had a library that was bigger than that. You had a school library, which was much, much bigger than that. And in each subject area, so history, English, French, German, whatever, you had a, a subject library, which was much bigger than that as well. 
so the sheer access to 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 knowledge was vastly different yeah. and that's and that's only just talking about books i mean it, it was true of absolutely everything we're talking about a school with something like 30 odd football pitches um 15 or 20 rugby pitches and and they also played all manner of other winter games we're talking about um a state of the art brand new athletics track by the time i left it's brand new lovely tartan you know as a runner compare that to say the running the municipal running tracks where i go now it it, it was a different is completely different beast yeah. um rowing was a big sport there um you know the olympic rowing uses the resources um, when we had it in england in 2012 used the resources which eton school boys can use any day of the summer so so in in every conceivable area there was just so much more resource and and that you know that that goes into um kids feelings of, of what they can do and what's possible is if you you notice when you're surrounded by absolutely everything you could possibly ask for and, and that goes into you and it, you know lots of people will will talk about um public school boys and Tony's in particular and say um they're our most annoying characteristic is our overweening self-confidence um that self-confidence comes from five years of it being abundant from material reality that everything you could want is there yeah and i'd love it if more kids had that sense of confidence you know yeah i think that's a good point isn't it that the resources thing is is huge and it does it does shape the sense of the possible that people have really and i i, I read as well that there were 1300 boys but about 160 teaching staff which seemed an awful lot compared to to most schools too yeah i think i think that's right i mean um I'm, I'm not sure what ratio that is to um, to to all teaching staff, whether it's whether it's full time, part time. And I, you know, I, I remember once when I was actually there, getting out my little green calendar and trying to work this out for myself because I wanted to try and work out what's what's the average class ratio. Um, you know, I, I could well imagine, for example, that that doesn't count possibly as many as another as the same number again of specialists art, drama, language, music, etc. teachers who'd only, you know, maybe come in half a day, a day a week, but would be the guitar teacher and so on. Yeah. Um, so if anything, I think that might underestimate it. Certainly, by the time you got to GCSEs, um, there were relatively few classes that were larger than 12 people. I was, I was going to bring it back a little bit per more personal again to talk about the loneliness that you, that you spoke of at the very beginning of the, of the conversation. And I didn't really dig into that because we got into a whole load of other interesting stuff. But just to just to bring it back to you again, you're kind of you're new at Eton, and you're in your own room there. You 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 maybe know one boy, Rory, um, but unlike many schools, you you don't know any of the kids around you, etc. And it's your first experience of of boarding. Can you tell us more about those sort of feelings of loneliness and? And also, how how long that kind of lasted for, and and how you overcame overcame that. You said to an extent how you've overcome it in terms of building this kind of outsiders network. But I'm just trying to get a sense for people of getting inside of your kind of your heart and soul, really, in terms of what was that like as a 13 year old boy being there um, for the first time. Well, I, I, I know I mean, I, it just was brutal, and and I don't think. Um... I don't know that there's many other ways of describing it other than to say that. I mean, I, I distinctly remember that feeling of looking around a room and, and you know, um, 
the room I had in it a pull down bed and trying to work out how much of the room there would, there would be left when I pulled down the bed because there really wasn't going to be very much and looking out the window and just thinking, Christ, you know, is this really how it's going to be for the next five years? I, mean, I, I don't want to over-dramatise this because there's a tendency for people who've been through that education system to do that. I remember when one of Geoffrey Arch and Jonathan Aitken went to prison, they went, you know, um, oh, I'm going to be fine in prison. I went to, to public school, which... I, I simultaneously knew exactly what he was saying, but also thought, you know, fuck off. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going to... So what, why were you thinking fuck off? Well, b- because there's, you know, there's an intense loneliness, but, but you know, for one thing, most of the other 300 people, um, when you start at Eton, are in an equal situation of intense loneliness. Um, eventually, you know, as a kid, you try and work out in that in that physical space, what are the things I can do to alleviate this loneliness? Well, they were, you can walk downstairs and telephone your parents. And okay, in those days there aren't mobile phones. It's only a phone on the wall. And there's 50 other kids who, quite a number of whom, will also going to be trying to call their parents that night. But there is a phone. Um, There's a TV room. And there are kids downstairs hanging around in the TV room and talking. and, And the one kid who's stuck in his room on day one doesn't know that. But some of those people will talk to you. Um, as you walk around the house, there are other kids in your year. Um, there are kids, maybe there's some kids in older years who you can talk to. It, it's not, um, it's not like going to prison, and it's not like going to prison because the whole way through, you are on an arc, and the arc is saying there is opportunity ahead of you. Whereas I'm sure, I don't know, I'm sure, I guess, part of what's horrible about being in prison is precisely that feeling the, the arc's going downwards that your opportunities bit by bit are going to be taken away from you. Even if you get out, chances are you're not going to have a great job. Your relationship isn't going to be great. You're not going to spend a lot of time with your kids or not the amount of time you want to. And that's the difference, you know. That, that's, that's why I'm saying fuck off. Okay. Well, it's just I noticed Stephen Fry said exactly the same thing because as a young man, he went to, to prison as well and he said the day-to-day existence of it being quite regimented and he, he, he found that almost kind of familiar and comfortable yeah no i i, I think uh, as i said i think i think that that's that's right I and mean, i think there's a there's a degree of um commonality um but as i said i you know i, I think it can be overstated yeah i'm just i'm curious now just on a on a, on a wider sense you know you've got you said it's like the bad Hogwarts, basically, and unusually with a boarding school, at the end of the school day, the school day kind of continues because everyone's still there, aren't they? So I'm wondering how were evenings actually spent? Was was were you up to your own devices? What what, what would happen of an evening once school was finished, but all the lads were still there? Well, one one of the things they did do is they gave us a lot of schoolwork precisely to try and fill up the evenings so that we weren't all doing what we'd be doing otherwise, which was, you know, running off, trying to fight against the rules to some extent. Um, so, so you know, I'm going to try and work it out. The, um, maybe the last lesson, I guess, finished about five o'clock. Then we'd go back. Then there'd be um, a period of um, hanging around when you're supposed to do schoolwork. Then there'd be a supper time. Um, and then in, in, in the houses often they'd organise something for the, for the evenings um, kind of after the supper, so there might be, you know, uh, one kid would, you'd, you'd spend about 15 minutes and a kid would bring along a poem or a sketch or something which they'd act out. Then, then after that, let's say you'd, you'd done all your schoolwork, um, 
then, you know, you might sit in your room, you might listen to music, you know, a friend might come around to visit you. When you were a bit older, you had more rights to go off and visit um, other friends in their, in their rooms in other houses. But at the start, you didn't have that. And, and there was also an element of just the kids really, really breaking against rules. I mean, even, even in my first term, I remember um, working out that, you know, it was possible if you got out of the building in a certain way, you could actually make your way more or less into Slough or into one of the towns roundabout. And, you know, for a period of time in my first term, I, I filled that time by literally doing favours with the old, older kids, taking a bit of their cash, buying a bit of vodka in an offie or whatever, and then, you know, bringing it back into, into the house. Um, obviously, if, if the kids who got caught doing that would get expelled. Um, but, you know, people found things like that, and, and right the whole way through, you know, in my last year, um, I wasn't in pot, but I was in the next kind of prefect down. And I, I remember, um, you know, just going to these endless disciplinary things because as pop, we were supposed to sit in and make sorry, as sick form select, we were supposed to sit in and see that the discipline was being done fairly. And there was an endless stream, essentially, of my mates who were being, you know, being caught with very small amounts of cannabis or whatever, and were just in trouble for that. So were you you on a kind of disciplinary committee at that point, were you? Is that how it was? Yeah, no, it wasn't that we were, it wasn't that we were, our, our job was more that, the, the, you know, the, the boy who was going to be disciplined was going to be disciplined by the, by the head teacher. It was the head teacher who made the whole decision. But we were meant to go off and um, go to the classroom where they were studying, see them, extract them, take them to the head teacher and sit in. I see. Um, so, so it wasn't like we were on a panel or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, I, I distinctly remember, you know, standing there and, you know, the head teacher would be saying, oh, isn't it terrible on this 12th of April, you know, smells of cannabis were emerging from your room. And it's me looking at my shoes thinking, fucking hell, I was in his room on the 12th of April. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, my, my final question, because I'm aware we've been, we've been chatting now for nearly the 45 minutes. I'm, one of the things I read, again, from Dominic West, he actually claimed that there was a a stigma from being associated with Eaton, which I don't know whether that's true or not, but I know that you very much, I mean, I refer to you as the people's barrister when I talk about you to my friends, because you've, you've gone into the law, haven't you? And you, you represent, I think your specialism really is representing social justice cases like, um, you know, building workers who are blacklisted and this kind of thing. And because you're amongst uh, people who are on the left, I suppose, who are also socially progressive, do you find, particularly amongst that environment, that that what Dominic West said about it being a stigma is is true? Do you, do you often feel almost still the outsider amongst the kind of group that you're that you're that you're part of today? No, I, I don't feel an outsider in that group. Say in my chambers, I'm I'm at a barrister set garden court where we only do social justice law. If we do crime, we defend. If we do employment, we do it for workers. I do love housing law. I only do it for tenants. Um, you, you know, that's that's the attitude of my chambers. There's no sense. I don't feel for a second that I'm an outsider there. That's good. But, I, I meant but, in the but, wider but, movement, but that, though, that, I suppose. That, that, Sorry, that, David. I, I meant in kind of, you know, in terms of the wider movement, people who are involved in that, such, such, that kind of politics can be quite dismissive based on someone's background. And, of course, they've had no choice in their background. But that can happen, and I've seen that happen. So I'm wondering whether the whether you feel that in the wider movement... Well, just just starting on my chance, right? What, yeah. what was going to go and say? Though? There's there's sometimes a bit of needle. I, I remember it being noticed that you know one time that um, 
you know, there was a discussion because someone had applied to my chambers who'd, who'd gone to the same school. And, there was, you know, there was a bit of joshing about that. And so everyone wanted to know how many Etonians out of our 150 or however many barristers, how many are Etonians? And people worked out there were two of us. And, you know, you wouldn't go through the process of counting yeah. <laughs> if it was another place. But, you know, but I say that and, you know, the, I share a room with people who went to comprehensive state schools in, you know, Oxford, in, in London, you know, um, I'm well aware that I had an absolutely massive advantage that I had a, opportunities which other people can only dream of. So, so there's that needle, and, and, but that needle's justified. I don't have a problem with it at all. Um, and and in the movement, I think there's there's the same thing that there's a feeling that you've got to prove yourself. And if um, people are looking for someone to have a go at, um, obviously because of the background I've had. There's a target there, and it make it kind of simplifies things and makes things easy. Um, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a big problem to have. Well, I was I was going to ask a. Well, I think this is my final question, but I've got another one in the back of my mind. I'm, I'm noticing that you spoke about your own your own children, who are, I think they're both boys, aren't they? Yeah. Um, you're from the sound of it, you've you've decided to break. Um, the chain, if you like, like your dad went to Eton, you went to Eton, your grandfather did. You're breaking the chain. You're not sending your children to Eton by the sound of it. And if that's true, why is that? Well, it, it, it's, be, it's because I don't like the school. I don't like the values it represents. I don't like the way it teaches kids to be. I, I recognise that it gives people all sorts of advantages. But I think that, that you know, if you're lucky enough and you've got the resources um, yourself and you know I think in the family you can find an equal strength a greater strength um, than anything that system provides so um, from the perspective of do I think the kids will get a decent education and will they learn everything yeah no I'm absolutely certain of that there's no sense of loss there's actually a sense of you know recovery that that most people don't live in that sort of insular single sex hierarchical environment and the notion that I can protect my kids from having to go through the same thing is actually quite a quite a positive feeling. Yeah, and and this really is my final question. This is the one buzzing along. I was, I'm, I'm going back to earlier on about halfway through the interview, and you were talking about the way some people feel damaged, and you, I mean, it was quite a high percentage. You were saying really, weren't you? About a quarter to a third of people that you you've spoken to have used these terms. Given that some of these people have have gone on to become. Um, rulers and and stuff like that. What what's your sense of compassion to those to those people who are who are on the different side to yourself? But maybe I don't know. Sometimes I I see rulers who seem to have a disdain or or seem to be shut off from from and alienated from other people. And I I can almost see the wound there. You know what I mean? And I'm wondering to what extent when you're when you're fighting the good fight as you do. To what extent do you see people on the other side who've had similar experience, um, you know, boarding maybe from the age of seven, and actually see not so much a callous leader, but maybe a wounded child? Look, it's, uh, it, it's not a bad way of looking at those people. In, in truth, it, it's not generally how I do look at them. Um, I mean, I gave the example earlier of Rory. I mean, Rory's now, you know, a relatively senior government minister. Um, it's, it, it, my feelings about him are not oh you know you were damaged and, and you know you've never had a 
a chance. I mean, that might or might not be a fair way of looking at him. But but the truth is, when I looked at him, I think, Jesus Christ, you know exactly what you were getting into. That I know from his life and his life subsequently that he's had four or five points where he could make um, a decision, and that decision was a choice, and both routes were open to him. Yeah, and I, th- I think he made the wrong choice, and. You know, maybe maybe there comes a point in life. There's a saying that you know often. Oh God, what was it? I think it was John Cleese published his memoir, and, and people were astonished because two thirds of the book was him complaining about how terrible his parents had been. And someone said, you know, once you get to the age of thirty, you can't really blame your parents anymore. Um, at a certain point, they're your choices. You took them. And if I'm thinking about um, Cameron Osborne and their like. That just is how I I, I see them. Um, that you know, either door was open, and these are people who had those choices. And okay, there may well have been some damage in the background, and yes, that le- that needs to be part of the equation. But Jesus, they didn't need to go the way they'd gone. Well, it's been absolutely lovely as ever, and and you're no longer in, in Liverpool anymore, David. So it's an absolute treat for me to have to have the luxury of a conversation with you for for this length of time. So I'm really, really grateful. And I'm grateful for you being so open with me as well about your school days when there's there's so much other stuff I could talk to you. So I'll probably have you on the show um, on another topic at a a later date, if you'd be willing. Oh, I'd absolutely love that. And thanks so much for the interview. Um, These aren't things that that people often talk about on the (laughs) Well, it's been a pleasure. So thanks again, David, and and take care. Have Have a great rest of the day. Brilliant. Thank you. So that was the lovely David Renton joining me there for a fascinating insight into life as a child at Eton College. Now, if you want to find more about uh, other podcasts that we've got available for you, you can simply go to alanparry.com. That's A-L-U-N parry.com. It's spelled the Welsh way. Or for any of my writings or to join the mailing list, any of that good stuff, simply go to alanparry.com, spelled A-L-U-N. And until the next one, I'll see you soon.